and don't cry. Your folks might understand you by and by. Just move on up toward your destination. Welcome to Respeaks, hosted by yours truly, Rihanna Raymond Williams. This podcast aims to share a variety of stories and conversations discussing race, education, health, and so much more. Here I use my voice to create change in the hope that it inspires you to do the same. Join me on this journey. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jenny Douglas who is a senior lecturer in health promotion in the Faculty of Wellbeing, Education and Language Studies at the Open University in the UK. Here, Dr. Douglas established and currently chairs the Black Women's Health and Wellbeing Research Network, which aims to promote the health and wellbeing of Black women through research and knowledge exchange. In this conversation, I'll be speaking with Jenny about her entry into health research her role as a researcher and lecturer, Black women's health nationally and internationally, and how she engages in and promotes scholar activism. Can you introduce yourself by telling me your name and the work that you do? I'm Jenny Douglas. I'm a senior lecturer in health promotion at the Open University. I write distance learning materials for the Open University, mainly on public health, And I'm also chair of the Black Women's Health and Wellbeing Research Network, which I established. So it's been a heavy couple of weeks with everything that's been going on, which I'm sure we'll be talking about in this conversation as we go on. But I just want to ask you, what has made you laugh this week? (laughs) It's funny. I can't think of anything that has made me laugh, but I have had things that have made me smile. And it's to do with my garden. My hollyhocks have started to blossom and I've never been able to plant hollyhocks before. And then today I noticed a blossom on my sweet peas and that made me smile. It's so exciting when you see things that you've planted start to sprout up. It's beautiful. It is because I have tried to plant things in the past and they just haven't really grown. This year I've had delphiniums, I've had lupins, I've had foxgloves. Yeah. Green fingers, aren't you, Jenny? (laughs) I think it's because I actually bothered to water them this year <laughs> that makes a difference doesn't it and I guess maybe because you've been at home as well a bit more I'm assuming yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah why and how did you fall into researching black women's health in the UK and what are some of the things you found on this journey Really, I have to go back to, oh gosh, the 1980s. And I worked for a project called Training in Health and Race. And it was a joint project between the Health Education Authority, or back then it might have been the Health Education Council, and the National Extension College. And the aim was to research the health needs of black and minority ethnic communities, Mm -hmm. and then to develop training for health workers around the needs of black and minority ethnic communities. And that's where I became very kind of aware of inequalities in health and inequities that black women experience. It's interesting, training in health and race, the director was Mavis Clark. And Mavis Clark was very involved in the anti-sus laws. And this week, I've been watching Uprising 
the film by Steve McQueen. I haven't watched it yet, but I know much about the story, but I haven't watched it. It's about the fire? Yeah, yeah, the new crossfire. Yes, of course. And the Black People's Day of Action. Yep, yep. He does it very well. It's very forensic in lots of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, people talking about what it felt like to be in the fire. Yeah, I mean, I found it really quite painful. It's really shocking what happened. It's really upsetting. And one of the people I really wanted to interview about that because he made a film, Melanie Shabazz, who's recently passed away. On yeah, movie. that's right. And yeah. he made an amazing film digitally. I think it's on YouTube or another platform, but he made a film called Blood of Goran about the kind of uprising at the time. And I think I stumbled across this video myself. I think last year sometime, it was just amazing to see so many people organising around this issue because this is before I was born. <laughs> Okay. I've never seen anything like it and I kind of can only relate to uprising and organizing in this time that I'm alive but it's so beautiful and empowering to see how much people are mobilizing before social media or before the internet yeah no absolutely I wasn't on the march itself the march was March the 2nd 1981 but at the time I was working for training health and race and we had an office in Bethnal Green so all of us including Mavis went to join the march ended in Hyde Park and so we went to Hyde Park and as you say it is amazing that people organised in that time and it's also kind of disappointing that we haven't carried through that organisation. After the racist murder by fire of 13 young black people in January 1981 there could be no going back for the black communities. The chants, the rage of this march, two months later, were to be a final warning. Between 1976 and 1978, 22 racist murders were recorded, including Michael Ferreira, a youth of 19, who whilst walking home with friends in Hackney, London, was knifed to death by racists. Few of these murderers and attackers were ever caught by the police, who refused to see the vicious attacks on black people as being racial. Racists were responsible for a fire which engulfed this house during a birthday party on January the 18th in New Cross, London, an area that has a history of attacks on premises occupied by black people. This time, 13 young black people lost their lives and 26 more physically and mentally maimed. The 13 dead, whose names we shall never forget, are Humphrey Brown, aged 13, Patricia Johnson, aged 15, Lloyd Hall, aged 21, Andrew Gooding, age 14, Yvonne Rudder, age 16, whose birthday party it was, Patrick Cummings, 15, Lillian Henry, 16, Peter Campbell, 18, Owen Thompson, 16, Glenn Powell, 16, Steve Collins, 17, Jerry Francis, also 17, and the second Ruddock to die on that night, Paul, age 22, brother of Yvonne Ruddock. The police theories about the fire have been unconvincing and, as usual, were backed up by the British media. They treated the massacre as a minor fire incident, supporting the police story that there is no racist connection. No one has been arrested for this crime. But for the families who have lost their sons and daughters, and those whose children are still suffering, it's a personal tragedy. One of them who lost her home, a daughter and a son, is Mrs. Amza Rudder. My concern over the, the, the children who lost their lives, it was unnecessary. Every time I close my eyes, I can only see the fire. It was terrible. The fire was really terrible. And the children were screaming, and they stopped screaming. And when they stopped screaming, I said, oh, God, they're dead, they're dead. 
It was so peaceful, really peaceful. It was extremely happy. I've never seen Yvonne so happy in my life at her birthday party. She was extremely happy. some of the factors that play into that as to why maybe the organizing is a lot less or maybe the energy because sometimes it feels that people have been marching for so long but we don't see the changes or the changes that we want to see there has been progress but not enough and that in itself is frustrating I think that's very true I think that we didn't sustain the action from 1981 but there were lots of pockets of action and there were lots of uprisings in different places in Birmingham in Liverpool and so I think the kind of action got dissipated which in some ways is I don't know whether it's a positive thing but I think sometimes we think that action only happens in London. I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah, but there was a lot of activity outside of London. I know because I found myself in the middle of the uprising in Birmingham. I can't remember what date it was, whether it was before or after 1981. But I remember that we were all told, I was living in Handsworth at the time, and we were all told that the National Front were going to march through Handsworth. And so all the shopkeepers kind of boarded up And then many of us, because at the time I was um, involved with Harambe organisation, many of us kind of came out on the streets, you know, to wait for the National Front to march through. I foolishly stood in front of, I'll never forget actually, it was like a cycle shop with a glass pane, which is not the best place to stand. Definitely not. But luckily that nothing happened, I'm assuming, which is a good thing. Yeah, well, people did throw bricks at the pane of glass. Luckily, I managed to move out of the way. I mean, it was interesting because then people were, again, mobilising against what they thought was the threat of the National Front. I mean, I think what would be really very good, and actually, it's funny that you mentioned Menelik Shabbat. I went to see one of his films at the Art Centre in Birmingham, the one about Lover's Rock. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and then afterwards there was a bit of discussion and he asked the audience what sorts of films should we be producing? And I actually said that it was really important that we start to document all the activism that there has been across the UK. Completely. It's so important because otherwise these stories get left and we're just kind of written out of history like nothing was happening in these times. That's right. I just don't think that we have done that to such a great extent. Because, you know, there was a lot happening in places like Birmingham and Manchester, as I've said, Nottingham, Liverpool, and we really need to document all of that. It kind of frustrates me as well to know that often when the stories are told, it's really London-centric, as if like the rest of the UK is just completely forgotten about. And we know there was such amazing activism and just mobilisation across the country, not just in London. Yes, I think that's a really important point that you mentioned. 
going back a bit, I know you spoke about your work earlier on. Why was you kind of drawn to that work and what was it about for you at the time, I guess, as being a black woman? And what were some of the things that you found on that journey? After I left working in training in health and race, I actually went to West Birmingham Health Promotion Unit as the head of the health promotion unit. And I was working with a project in Handsworth, Handsworth Young Mothers. We actually, first of all, ran a kind of course on black women's health issues. And it was around the time when Depra-Provera was being used as an injectable contraceptive. And there were women that came to the course who, as we talked, they realised that they'd actually received Depra-Provera. And that's where it became very clear to me that it wasn't kind of like an academic exercise that black women's health was being kind of affected, you know, day in and day out. For sure. And when you talk about these women realising that they had received Depra-Provera, I guess that's without consent. It was just injected into them when they was in hospital after giving birth or something like that. Yeah, after giving birth. And what was really interesting is that apparently in hospital, they were just told, we're going to give you a rubella injection. And therefore, because we're giving you rubella, you can't get pregnant while you have the rubella injection. And we're going to give you Depra-Provera. Now, if you don't know what they're talking about when they say rubella and Depra-Provera and you've just had a baby, then you're likely to just say yes. Yeah, of course. And they're not being transparent about what they really are giving. That's the whole point of it, the lie of it all. As a mother just giving birth, everything was all over the place. You want to keep yourself and your baby safe. And you probably would just say yes because you're just trying to think about safety and health providers are lying to you, you know, to restrict your reproductive choices. It's terrible. Yeah. There was one woman, though, who actually said, because she knew what rubella was and she knew what Depra-Provera was, and she said, I will have the rubella, but I'm not having Depra-Provera. And then they tried to convince her that she had to have Depra-Provera, and she just refused to have it. So there were just some women who were aware. And I think from that, we started to raise much more awareness, you know, with black women in Handsworth, through Handsworth Young Mothers about rubella and about Depra-Provera. Yeah, it's such an important issue. And I know that Stella Dadzi and the other women's collective, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, that was in London. But was it also across London? I'm not sure if there were other members outside of London who took part in OWAD in London. OWAD was mainly in London, but there was also a group of us in Birmingham, Birmingham Black Sisters. I think actually there are two Birmingham Black Sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the group that I was part of, really, we started organising around health. What were the things, I guess, thinking about then, as you mentioned, kind of almost, you know, forcefully giving people injections to prevent their reproductive capacity without their consent, which is terrible. But what were the other things that was happening in regards to health, not just reproductive health, but mental health or I mean the other thing that was happening was around sickle cell anemia I remember we organized again another meeting at Hands with Young Mothers on sickle cell anemia with the Sickle Cell Society and the organization OSCAR Organization for Sickle Cell Anemia Research and Elizabeth Anyonwu who is now fairly well known actually came up to Birmingham for that meeting I remember the meeting because the meeting just, it was one of those meetings that got very intense with like community members talking about, you know, how to organise around sickle cell. 
And I remember, in fact, that Elizabeth and there was another woman who was with her who's also a friend, Mia Morris, and they actually missed their train back to London. So they actually ended up staying with me. We looked at ways in which we could raise awareness of sickle cell anemia. And it's sad that, you know, like today, you know, recently there have been two deaths of black men who did not get appropriate treatment when they had a sickle cell crisis because of the assumption that black men or black people didn't need pain relief and that if we got pain relief that we would get addicted to painkillers. I mean, I can't remember the name of the poor young man, but the case was investigated, I think, earlier this year. And this man actually phoned an ambulance from inside a hospital because he wasn't getting appropriate pain relief. And when you think that that is, you know, like 40 years on from when we were raising issues, it just shows you how slow change is. Yeah, and what does change even look like if we're still having these terrible incidences today? It's so heartbreaking to think, you know, I think it comes back to the stereotypes around black bodies and, you know, that being criminal or drug addicted or when we're in pain and we need help and support and the people that are meant to help and support us aren't doing that, which is terrible. It is absolutely awful. And, you know, you kind of think, well, how can we start to really effect change so that people just start to see us as human beings who experience pain, you know, who are not drug addicted? During the 1960s, 70s and 80s, the spirit of resistance and unity was alive amongst black communities across the UK. Black community groups formed and organised political action and demonstrations across the country against racism and oppression. This is a short clip taken from a conversation between Farouk Dondi and Leila Hassan Howe. Here they speak about why they both became activists in Britain's Black Power movement. There was a lot of hostility to immigrants and immigration. Some organisations would like to see all coloured people sent back to their home countries. Keep Britain, Britain, keep it white as it should be. Even when I went to school, you would hear it in the classroom. Miss, miss, this isn't fair. Why are all these immigrants coming here? They're coming to take my dad's job, etc. There won't be enough houses and jobs to go around. The white person should have their mouths first. My mother was English and I was surrounded really by white people. So I was quite isolated and lonely. I came to Britain on a scholarship to Cambridge University. It was when I came to London looking for a room to stay that I suddenly got a jolt. They really did say, we don't want you here. A lot of white people did not want black people as their neighbours and they certainly didn't want them in their houses. Apart from facing this kind of racism from landlords, one would go to pubs and they would pretend that you were not there, that you were an invisible person. Serious clashes between the police and immigrants, highlighting the growing conflict between the two up and down the country. The policing of black communities was very, very brutal. We, as we grew up, began to resist and want better for ourselves. A black man is not given a chance to get a position where he has any sort of power. He's not given a chance in society to play any part at all in a way he has any authority. There was a community spirit, a spirit of resistance side by side with poor housing, poor education, police brutality, and just trying to make an existence in very, very poor circumstances. 
I lived on a flat on the second floor. Somebody threw a Molotov cocktail through the glass. The flames were coming through. I jumped two stories down. That was a racial attack. Five houses, Asian and black houses, were bombed the same night. I knew what was going on and I wanted to be part of something, so I joined the Black Unity and Freedom Party. At weekends, Black Panther badges are proudly worn on the streets of London. 1967, there was a feeling that the world was going to be changed. The Black Panther movement spoke about who we were, why we were here. I thought these people are sensible. I want to join them. This was something that we had to do. The real revolutionary proletariat ready to fight by any means necessary for the liberation of our people. In your own words or experience, what does activism mean to you and how have you incorporated activism into your work? I think people can be activists on lots of different levels. At the bottom line, it's about trying to make change. And, you know, for some people, it is about demonstrating in the streets. It is about campaigning and organising marches. But I think it is also about, perhaps I might call it scholar activism, which is about raising issues, writing about issues, keeping things on the agenda, and also making a lot of, not just health professionals aware, but also making, you know, black women aware and more kind of, um, equipped to challenge, you know, so that when black women are going into health services, you know, that they can actually challenge the health providers if they're not getting appropriate care. That's kind of where my activism lies at the moment, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess just thinking about all the health inequality that black women and black communities experience, it can and does feel very draining. Fanny Lou Hamer says it the best, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So why is this work so important to you? Well, I would hope to see a change in my lifetime. (laughs) I think we've got to acknowledge there have been some small changes. But the trouble is that structural racism shows itself in lots of different aspects of our health. You know, it could be reproductive health. It could be around sickle cell anemia. It could be, you know, around the care that you get when you have diabetes. You know, now it's around kind of, you know, maternal health. But we need to be making those changes so that they are permanent changes. I don't want to discover like next week that there's another big issue, you know, where we're not getting appropriate care. But that's how it is, I think, at the moment. It's so frustrating and so tiring that there always seems to be another thing. Like we think we are dealing with one issue, whether it's, you know, maternal mortality. And then all of a sudden there's another issue that we consistently have to keep fighting and battling against. As a researcher who's been leading this work or these conversations for well over 30 years, how does it make you feel that this issue of maternal mortality is finally on the public health agenda and has got some mainstream attention? Do you think this is an indication that we can expect change going forward? I would like to hope that we can expect change going forward. It's taken the activism of a whole kind of range of people to raise awareness. Although I say that much more people are aware, I'm still kind of speaking to people. And when I say, you know, four or five times more, people are still shocked. I mean, it's kind of easy to be in a sort of bubble where you're speaking to like-minded people and you assume that everybody else is aware. I think there's so much work to do. 
I'm Mars Lord and I am a birth doula. When you start to talk about the way you felt you've been treated, and people say, no, it's not racism, it's not black women, it's all women. This happens to all women. So you're shut down, you're silenced, and so you say nothing. It was very scary when I found out I was pregnant with Levi, because I was only 20. So I had like my big birth plan where I was having a water birth and everything was going to be so beautiful. Then someone came and, and then I remember saying to her, am I going to go, I'm going to have my water birth, right? And she was like, no, we don't have time for that. And I was like, what? She was like, no, we have to just get you, get the baby born now, the baby's coming, we don't have any time. So we get into a room, there's a midwife. She comes up to me and she says to me, you're screaming. I was like, it hurts. <laughs> like, I don't know what else you want me to do. I just wanted to go. Nobody I've actually come into contact with since I've been here has been nice. I just want to go home. One of the problems we've identified in our reports is that a lot of symptoms are dismissed as due to pregnancy when actually they're quite concerning symptoms. We need to dismantle the stereotypes the stereotype of the angry black woman, the strong black woman. You know, we need to allow people the freedom to say, I'm struggling in this, rather than shutting them down and saying, no, that's just the way the system works. I was in a wheelchair by the end of my pregnancy and I was in my physically could not give birth and I was asking for a C-section and they refused all the way to the very end when his heartbeat dropped and I couldn't push him out. And three days in labour and then I had to end up having a C-section after all of that, which was really traumatic. So if there are no images, there are no people that look like you, if the education is culturally incompetent, culturally unsafe, then why would they come in and access your information? I did go to antenatal classes. It was a good experience with my husband. The maternity classes were good. There were good opportunities to ask questions. And it was nice to be in a room with diverse people because you could hear different stories. There must be something going on to cause the deaths to rise from three times more likely in the previous triennial to five times more likely. But there are issues that need refining and I think what is lacking is insightful perspective of the black community. When I found out I was pregnant with Elijah, I was like, that's it. The least interaction I have with hospitals and things, the better I know it will be for me. But um, I still planned the hospital birth. Although I knew I didn't want it, I was still a bit nervous about the possibilities of having a baby at home. I didn't trust them at all. Nobody within the maternity field could convince me that they were that they had my best interest in heart. When when we're thinking about why women die, um, there's there's sort of there's two types of why. So there's there's why in terms of did they have heart disease or did they have severe bleeding, uh, but there's also a why in in terms of was the treatment that we gave to these women, could we treat women better to prevent them dying? If there is any, any evidence that uh, she's not being listened to or if the system doesn't seem to be working for them. So it's, it's, it's going back and, and 
you know, making sure that we are focusing on those issues. When you start to talk about the way you felt you've been treated, the things that have happened to you, and you say, actually, you know, that was really hinky, that was, that was really racist, and people say, no, it's not racism, it's not black women, it's all women, this happens to all women. So you're shut down, you're silenced, and so you say nothing. If we can accept that education and the police, etc., is all systemically racist, and we're working to change that, then we need to accept the same of the medical system. What we have to do is to look for the main ingredient that will actually turn the tide for black women. I believe part of that is around cultural safety, which not just focuses on the individual woman and her culture, but it focuses on the person who is giving the care as well. For me, a large part of my research aims to look at the impact of medical racism on black women's engagement with sexual and reproductive health care, as well as the stereotypes and negative language that has been used to describe black women, which I think has potentially denied us as a community of voice and visibility. But what are the other factors that you feel play a role in how black women access and receive care from health services and providers? I would agree that, you know, medical racism has a lot to do with it. And, you know, there are still so many stereotypes about black women and our bodies. You just walk into somebody providing health services and you can see immediately, you know, that they have stereotypes about you as a person. It's interesting. When I went to get my second vaccine, it was when the issues were being raised about the potential of having clots with the AstraZeneca. And as I've said to you before, I had a stroke sort of 13 years ago. So I asked the GP who was on duty at the vaccination clinic, you know, if he could explain to me whether or not I'm going to be at greater risk of having blood clots from having the AstraZeneca vaccine. And he immediately just said to me, well, you're black, so you're at greater risk of COVID. So I said to him, I'm not at greater risk of COVID because I'm black. (laughs) And he said, oh, but black people are dying. I said, but it's not because we're black. It's because of structural racism that affects us at every level. We then had this kind of long debate for about 20 minutes. It was just very easy for him just to stereotype me as being black and then therefore I was at greater risk and therefore I shouldn't worry about blood clots because I'm more likely to die anyhow from COVID. That's terrible. Just completely unaware or doesn't even want to discuss the structural issues as to why black and racialized communities are more exposed to all these health inequalities. It's not because of our race, it's because of the racism. You know? It's because of racism. And when I said this to him, he was kind of like taken aback a bit. But I could see that I made him think. Yeah, which I think is important. And it just makes you think, are people thinking or are they just responding to what is being told to them? People don't really take time to sit and think about all these issues and how they really, I guess, come together to make bigger issues for other people. I think a lot of people, unfortunately, just take in the headlines in the media and don't kind of think it through. And often they're not provided. People are not provided with information about, you know, the fact that structural racism is causing COVID, you know, in terms of the higher impact. 
for me, I've experienced racial violence at the hand of the academy. So I know all too well that accessing further and higher education is not safe or at times it can't be healthy. I know you spoke about, you know, scholar activism as the way that you kind of perform your activism. And on top of that, some people from our own communities feel that research is not accessible nor is it sexy and it doesn't feel like it's a fun thing to do. So how do you feel that we can encourage more black women to get into research or lead research centering black women's experiences outside of the academy? Well, first of all, I think that more black women, you know, should be encouraged, you know, to go into research, should be encouraged to do degrees, should be encouraged to get, you know, research funding to do PhDs. It's not easy. I don't think it's easy at all. You know, I know many black women who do start PhDs as part-time researchers because often, you know, they're working full-time, they often have families, and, you know, they often don't have appropriate support in terms of supervisors who actually understand what it is like to be a black woman living in the UK now and trying to undertake research. But we really need to build, you know, a kind of group of more black women and more black women researchers. I'm starting to see people kind of coming through. And I've kind of been thinking about how we can organise more as black women to support potential black researchers, to provide not necessarily supervision, but informal supervision, informal support. Because it's tough. You know, I did my PhD part time and it was tough. And my supervisor was somebody who she'd only been used to having career researchers, people who'd done their first degree, they'd done their second degree. They were full time researchers with research funding. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't really tuned into, you know, a part time researcher who's working full time, who's got a family. There have been quite a few of my friends who've recently got their PhDs and I was kind of wondering how we could support other black women because it is a tough journey and, you know, even in terms of the assumptions that some white supervisors have, some white supervisors may not think that black women have the academic skills to be able to undertake a PhD. Completely wrong, but we've got to address the racism that they come to the interaction with. I've been at the OU for a long time, for 20 years, but you know, during that time there have been people who have not thought that I was academically capable. And some people were quite forthright in the sorts of things that they said to me. Like one of my colleagues was asked whether she came to England on a banana boat. Really? In this 2021, people have still got these crazy... Yeah, it's crazy. So disrespectful as well. It is. And the people that ask those questions actually think that they're being sensitive. It's even interesting you make that point, Jenny, because sometimes I have conversations with some of my other black colleagues and people say and do things which we know are completely insensitive and should not have even come out of their mouth. But then I'm almost pushed back by some of my colleagues about my expectations, about how far people should be. And if they can't say it here, where can they say it? They shouldn't be thinking it, first of all, and they shouldn't come and say it in these spaces. I don't think we should be encouraging the capacity to harm people because you're actually causing harm when you say such things. I think you're absolutely right. People are causing harm and we ought to have a way of 
supporting people to challenge that kind of harm, those kind of assumptions. You know, there are assumptions about black feminist epistemology and not actually giving it any credit at all, you know, and telling people, no, they can't use intersectionality as a framework. You know, critical race theory isn't a theory. It's not even this, you know, the kind of person as a black person or racialized person, but even the concepts of knowledge production, that's completely disregarded as well. It's not valued or respected and it continues to make you feel invisible and like you don't have anything to offer when we do have so much to offer. Absolutely. And, you know, there is such a strong tradition of black feminist epistemology that we should be able to draw on and that other people should be seeing as valid knowledge production. Alongside leading your own research, you are also a lecturer at the Open University. Can you tell us a little bit more about this role and what you enjoy about being a lecturer? Ever since I went to the Open University, I've been involved in a public health course. So when I first went, it was called Promoting Health. And then it was called Promoting Public Health. And then before the first lockdown, there was a curriculum review at the Open University. The public health module was actually axed, so it did its last presentation in the first lockdown. Public health to me is such an important area, and for us not to have a public health module during a pandemic is <laughs> laughable completely. <laughs> Absolutely. So many people actually challenged for it to be reinstated. I'm very pleased to say the module will be reinstated from October 2022. So this academic year that's coming up, I'm kind of leading the module team that will update the module kind of in light of COVID and the pandemic and other issues in terms of public health and ensure that it is relevant, you know, in relation to the Global South. So I'm really excited about this because one of the things about when we produce modules at the Open University, as well as kind of written materials and written online materials like learning guides, you know, we can produce short videos, short audios. We can, you know, have short interviews with people. So there's a lot of scope, really, to make a really exciting module. I am excited, really excited about doing this this academic year. It sounds so amazing. I think you're right. I think public health is such an instrumental topic and it should be on the curriculum. Did you know the reason as to why they say it should be taken off or was it about uptake like people weren't choosing it as a module to study or? Yeah it was mainly to do with uptake. Mm. So in the very early years of the Promoting Health module, we used to have up to 700 students doing the module each year. It's part of an undergraduate's offering, but also it's a standalone module. But then with the increase in student fees, with all the reorganisation that was going on in public health, because public health came out of the health service and public health as a kind of discipline and an area is now in the local authority. So local authorities weren't supporting students to do the module. So our numbers went down to around 200 and that's where they plateaued. And, you know, because we're the Open University, we have to have economies of scale. So we need to have large numbers of students. But no, it's back on the agenda and we're hoping that we will get many more students to do this. I hope so too. I think it's almost like a foundation. I think for me in my career, I've worked in sexual health for the last 10 years. Even in my master's, I had other areas of health to look at, but I wish I looked at all other areas of health because they're all intersecting and 
there's so much that you could learn when you look at all the other areas of health in general and just think about how do we engage people in managing their health, accessing services and so much more. Such an important module for sure. Yeah, and I think it's all the principles of public health and health promotion that are really important because you say you then have a foundation, you know, to develop other particular areas. And, you know, a kind of focus on community empowerment and community involvement. Yeah, Yeah, it is an exciting module. (laughs) Who or what inspires your work and activism? And how has this kept you motivated or nourished over the years? I think at different points, it's been different groups. I've probably been very good in seeking out opportunities to actually see what different groups are doing. So, for example, the Black Women's Health Study based at Boston University, I was able to get some funding to actually go and spend some time at Boston University to see what they were doing and how they were doing their study. And I find that really motivating and really exciting. But also, as well as being exciting, it kind of made me aware of what we don't have here in the UK. I also was able to go to the Black Women's Health Imperative in Washington and look at what they were doing. Although they kind of used the research from the Black Women's Health Study, they were much more focused on raising issues around Black Women's Health and actually developing policy and strategy and, you know, raising issues with the government. So particularly around insurance, you know, with Obamacare and It's things like that that excite me, where I can see that you can actually affect change. Those are the things that motivate me. And I mean, during lockdown, it's been good in a way that, you know, we've had lots of webinars from the US and other places. And I have also organised webinars myself. I know you mentioned the Black Women's Health Study. And it's something I've heard a lot about in different circles that I'm a part of and the idea that we should have something here in the UK that kind of represents black women's experiences of health and access to health services and everything like that. Just thinking about the colleagues that we have internationally in the US and across the world, what do you think we can learn about the way that they do research to enhance our own practice as researchers? I think we can learn particularly around intersectionality and research. People like Lisa Boleg at George Washington University and a lot of her research projects have actually taken an intersectional approach, an intersectional framework and I don't think that we are doing that yet here in the UK. I think that what has been valuable, if we want to think about it in terms of value about Covid, is that it has made people aware that you can't just look at research in terms of ethnicity or gender or poverty or material health. You actually have to look at all of the intersections. But I think it will take a while for us to be able to have some really intersectional research projects here in the UK because there just aren't that many intersectional researchers here. Thinking about the heaviness of your work and the work that you do, What do you do for self-care and to switch off from the work to maintain your own health and well-being? I walk and I garden. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny because I've only got a little tiny garden and it's a bit of a funny shape. Not many people can say they have a garden that's triangular shaped, but mine is (laughs) triangular shaped. But we were saying earlier, I've really found it great to actually put things in as small plants and as seeds and actually see them grow. I've also found it a little bit frustrating because some things 
don't flower for very long and you've like put all of that effort in (laughs) and they like flower for two weeks and then they die (laughs) but also I've kind of realized how much time if you're going to be a good gardener which I'm not how much time it really takes yeah it's a commitment you have to be really committed to gardening I think it's such an undervalued skill because I can't garden I'm not really that good but my granny she has a beautiful garden in Jamaica with all this vegetation it's just so beautiful and green and she's just angry at me here because we have a concrete garden she's like why haven't you got grass I can plant things in I think it's really interesting because I was born here in the UK and I grew up with quite a few aunts who then left the UK to go to Canada or the States or back to Jamaica. But when I was growing up, the skills that those women had, because they all had beautiful gardens. These aunts of mine were nurses, so they were working full-time, they were looking after their children, they had beautiful gardens. They were also really good bakers, so they would, you know, bake lots of cakes. They were dressmakers, like my my mother was a dressmaker and a baker. and, And I kind of think, gosh, how did they do it all? Yeah, we'd have the time to do all of those things. My granny, my mum, all the same. They did all of these things. I'm just like, I don't even have the energy. Absolutely. These sorts of things, sometimes, you know, we forget that those are the traditions that we came out of. And other people don't recognise that we have those traditions, that we grew up baking, we grew up sewing. Yeah, very creative, adaptable. And yeah, it's just beautiful. It's really beautiful. What are you currently working on at the moment? I've just finished a chapter on black women and COVID in the UK, which is part of a collection that has been put together by Julia Jordan Zachary, mainly a US book. But that's the other thing that I've actually found really empowering and supportive, working with yourself on the book that you've put together and working with other black women who are unapologetic Like this other woman, Stephanie Evans, I have a chapter in her book on public health and she got us all together and she said, I am writing for black women and I'm unapologetic about it. And I think that we need to be much, much more like that because I think we need to have materials and resources that are accessible to black women so that we're exchanging knowledge with other black women, raising awareness about a whole range of issues with black women and with black communities more generally. I agree and I think books are great and audio in this version kind of having an interview with you and films and documentaries all of these things are about building our archive for the next generation of activists or researchers. Yeah we do need many more films because I think also I don't want to undermine the bad experiences we have had as black communities but you know we have so much richness in our black communities that we really should be documenting this in terms of films and documentaries about how, you know, it's almost in the words of Audrey Lord, we were never meant to survive, but we have survived. And we've survived because of the ingenuity and the creativity, you know, of the generation that went before us. Completely. And these are the things we need to pass on to the next generation as people before us have done to kind of keep us going. If you were not a researcher, what would you see yourself doing and why? That's a really difficult question. (laughs) The other thing I'd like to do, but I never will do it, is just write fiction. I think that we can be documenting our history through fiction. You know, I'm thinking of Andrea Levy's books, Joan Riley, who wrote The Unbelonging and her series of books. 
I kind of think that that is a way, again, that we can leave our histories. What are your hopes for Black women's health in the future? And how can we begin to move towards this now? Well, my hope would be that we have a Black women's health and wellbeing research centre and that somebody somewhere out there decides it's something worth funding. Over the years, I've applied for small amounts of funding and not been that successful. A group of us from the Black Women's Health and Wellbeing Research Network applied several times to the ESRC for seminar series. And I can't help but think that because it was a group of black women academics that we never, ever got funding. You know, it goes back to the kind of discussion we had before, that we must be seen as legitimate producers of knowledge. And so my hope for the future would be that we had many, many more black women researchers. I agree completely, Jenny. And I just was thinking as you were saying that, it's so disrespectful, as we know, and just thinking about what was their feedback as to why, you know, you've applied so many times for different things to kind of centre black women's voices. What has been their response? Why they can't fund the project or the seminar? It's interesting because we always get really good feedback. <laughs> and then they say, but unfortunately, you haven't addressed X, Y and Z. So on one project, we got good feedback. We didn't get funding and they asked us to address this X, Y and Z. So we reapplied, addressing X, Y, and Z. And then, of course, they come back with saying, but you need to do A, B, and C. Oh, it's just ridiculous. It's just <laughs> like a never-ending cycle of no, unfortunately. But one day it will be a yes, I'm sure. Production and sound design of this episode was by Hannah Ward. Thank you for listening to Respeaks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, join me again soon. Not child.